Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Fred Kemp. I'm president and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Uh, and it's uh, my great honor uh, to welcome you to the launch of a groundbreaking uh, Atlantic Council report, Breaking Aleppo. Um, this is groundbreaking in several respects. Uh, first of all, in a place, in a time, in an era where we're facing uh, a mixture of uh, falsehoods and truths, it's incontrovertible evidence. Uh, secondarily, it uses technology uh, to, uh, and open source work uh, to confirm uh, what we all uh, feared was the case, but, uh, uh, but as you read through the pages or you look at it online, you'll find it compelling. And then third of all, uh, the sharp analysis underscores it all. Before we get started, let me remind those of you in the audience that this, is, and this event is on the record and those online as well. Uh, it's being webcast live. And we encourage you to uh, engage with us in the conversation using the hashtag uh, Breaking Aleppo. So hashtag Breaking Aleppo. Uh, this work is really the Atlantic Council at its very best. This report came about thanks to the dedicated efforts of its authors, as well as a vast team of international partners all involved in crucial work addressing the, the crisis in Syria. So first of all, I just want to extend our deepest appreciation to our partners. And because it's so important, I will list them. Aleppo Media Center, Bellingcat, Syrian America, American Medical Society, the White Helmets, Syrian Campaign, the Syria Institute, Agenda Global, the Rafi Career Center on the Middle East at the Atlantic Council, the Union of Medical Care and Relief Organizations, and Mayday Rescue. And then independently out of the UK, an organization called Forensic Architecture uh, uh, came to the same conclusions that we've been able to come to, and thus are listed with thanks in the program. The team used innovative open source methodologies, digital forensic research, forensic architecture, and geolocation analysis to produce this report, which captures the final months of the breaking of Aleppo. It lays out the facts and fictions of the conflict, serving as a reminder that the atrocities of Aleppo should not be so easily forgotten, and thanks to this report, will not be so easily forgotten. The report exhaustively verifies and chronicles the destruction inflicted upon the city and its inhabitants, the vast majority of whom were non combatants during the siege, bombardment, and final assault of the city in the second half of 2016. It exposes the deliberate and systematic destruction of Aleppo. In six months of siege, the regime of President Bashar al-Assad and his allies subjected over 100,000 residents of opposition-held eastern Aleppo to a crescendo of brutality using barrel bombs, cluster munitions, incendiaries, and chemical weapons in a bid to break the will and spirit of the city. In the foreword to the report, former US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, former Swedish Prime Minister and Foreign Minister Carl Bildt, uh, former Deputy Secretary of State Nick Burns of Harvard University, and our own Chairman John Huntsman, uh, write, quote, the siege of Aleppo brought the horrors of the 20th century's wars to the 21st century. 
And this whole saga will be written about in history books for decades, maybe even centuries to come, as we still read about Guernica. Quote from the report and from the foreword, hospitals were bombed not once or twice, but repeatedly. Cluster bombs and incendiaries fell on residential areas. Chemical weapons were used. Repeat that, chemical weapons were used. Siege, hunger, and indiscriminate strikes brought suffering to women, children, the disabled, and the very old. This was, and I quote, nothing less than a war on objective facts by the regime, Russian officials, and media. It was aimed less at convincing than at confusing and disorienting rivals, sapping confidence, sowing disunity, and making truth entirely subjective, such that one party's lie became just as good as another's fact, end quote from the forward. Yet the coordinated disinformation cannot hide the truth. The evidence is clear, it's consistent, and the evidence is compelling. Breaking Aleppo chronicles that evidence in exhaustive detail exposing the campaign to destroy one of the world's most ancient and vibrant cities so that the Assad government could cling to power. The foreword concludes, quote, this report tells the story of breaking Aleppo in detail so that the world will know these facts and the United States and its regional partners will be able to adjust policy accordingly securing their interests, defending their values, defeating terrorist groups, and protecting vulnerable populations, unquote. This is a forward signed by bipartisan leaders of great renown. Our hope at the Atlantic Council is that this exhaustive look at the final months of Aleppo will spur the international community to action by recognizing the importance of engagement abroad and the difference we can have when working together to secure the future and the difference we may leave when we leave a vacuum to be filled by others. With that, please join me in welcoming Ambassador Fred Hoff, the director of the Atlantic Council's Rafi Career Center for the Middle East. Fred, thank you. Uh, thank you very much and uh, welcome to one and all for our program this afternoon. Syria's internal conflict has, for several years now, inspired a very concentrated effort on the part of the Hariri Center to make a positive policy impact for the good. My colleagues and I have tried by offering practical policy alternatives based on sound analysis to make a difference for the better. The report being issued today was produced by the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, and it stands as an authoritative account of deliberate criminality and conscious efforts to cover it up. It is also inevitably, if not intentionally, a testament of the extent to which our efforts to change American policy fell short. Breaking Aleppo is a chronicle of the methods employed by Russia and the Assad regime, with Iran supporting from the wings, to achieve military victory through terror. Terrorism is the deliberate targeting of civilians, 
with acts of violence and intimidation for political ends. No one who reads this report will be left with any doubt about the extent to which Moscow and its clients went to subdue Eastern Aleppo by going after civilians. No one who reads this report will have any doubt about the extent to which Moscow and the Assad regime falsified information in a failed attempt to deny what they were doing. Although much of the terror was indiscriminate, some of it, particularly when it came to hospitals, was quite targeted. What breaking Aleppo does not chronicle is the day-to-day -day response of the United States to the Russian and regime campaign of civilian terror and mass homicide. Often, following some of the atrocities, were statements of outrage by a United Nations ambassador who had written a masterful book about how just this sort of thing had taken place multiple times in the 20th century without a timely American response. Occasionally, a Secretary of State would pronounce himself shocked and disappointed by the murder and mayhem. Now and then, even a president would comment that this sort of savagery had no place in the 21st century, but that nothing short of invading and occupying Syria could be done to protect, protect Syrian civilians from the horrors being inflicted upon them. When asked recently whether he regarded Russia's President Putin as a killer, a new president replied, quote, you think our country's so innocent, unquote. He's taken a lot of criticism for employing a moral equivalence argument that used to be the exclusive property in this country of the hard left. And yet, when his predecessor left office on January 20th, he bequeathed to Mr. Trump a perfect record of having protected not one single Syrian civilian inside Syria during the nearly six years of conflict on his watch. Not one. This is not exactly a testament to decency, much less innocence. Breaking Aleppo tells a story about how far Russia and the Assad regime, emboldened by the passivity of a leaderless, hollowed out West, were willing to go in deliberately targeting defenseless civilians. It tells a story of how they employed alternative facts to obfusc obfuscate their crimes. I'd like to stop talking now and give way to a scene setting video, but not before expressing my thanks to the authors of this report and my earnest hope that this report 
will play a positive role in someday prompting accountability for the perpetrators and justice for the victims. Thank you. Setter, and thank you, the other Fred, my boss, for the kind introduction. Uh, I'm Max. I work in the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, and I was very pleased to lead the team that had put together this report. And I just wanted to show you some of the highlights that we had in this um, great body of work with so many great people involved. But before I do that, I just wanted to do a shout out to the team that's here in the room. And it's also linked in remotely uh, with Elliot Higgins being on the line, and he's going to join us in a few minutes here. But then also uh, Emma Beals being back there, uh, a great friend uh, of the council as well as Faisal from the Rafi Career Center uh, and so many more that have contributed to that, uh, including also uh, groups and partners from all over the world, people in Aleppo that were risking their lives to try to extract some more recent information about the situation going on there, people who have contributed voluntarily hours and nights to uh, bring this great body of work uh, to the public today. Uh, what I want to talk about with you primarily though is how a city that in 2011 had still been rather affluent and it worked out quite fine, had turned in a really short time span into a complete war zone, in a complete deserted city in many ways, in some parts of it. Um, and what we decided to do at the Atlantic Council is that because so many people were talking about this conflict, for the first time we've witnessed a conflict that is so talked about from every corner, from every street that we see, from every possible house or rooftop. What if we could listen to all the voices in Aleppo talking about what, they're, what the people are witnessing on the ground? What if we could verify which one of these accounts are accurate and which one of them are not? The challenge with observing Aleppo for many has been that there's a lot of messages coming out, but not all of those messages are genuine. Some of those messages are fake. They're misleading. They're intentionally trying to portray the situation on the ground in a colorful narrative that is not true. To try to distort our public, but at the same time mislead our policymakers at the negotiation table with the parties involved in the conflict. Whether it's the Assad regime itself, or it's Russia that has been supporting the Assad regime for so long. So we at the Digital Forensic Research Lab decided that if a message is being published if we can find out how to differentiate between fact and fiction, 
then perhaps we could tell the story of Aleppo. And the way we did it is that we realized that every single time someone sends a message out, they'll leave a digital breadcrumb behind. A digital breadcrumb that has a lot of information in it. And that information that is in a single digital breadcrumb left behind by the public, we can use to compare to what other people are saying. We can see all kinds of information, whether it's audiovisual, whether it's metadata, whether it's generic information. And on top of that, when an individual posts, such as this civilian here on vacation, we can also compare it to other messages that are out there. And when we do that, what we find over time is a digital fingerprint. A digital fingerprint that allows us to differentiate between fact and fiction. A digital fingerprint that allows us to put the facts where they belong into reality and keep the misleading alternative facts in the fake component that they belong to. Now, what we decided to do is that on top of us just doing the research ourselves, we want to get as many people involved into it as possible, independent groups, our, uh, independent groups as well as partners that have been working with us in the past, so that it wouldn't be just a few of us researching and trying to figure out what is happening on the ground, since so many already have done that. But rather, we would encourage others to, in parallel, do their own research. Um, while we were researching this report, in parallel to us, two other great institutions have been working on their own reports. Uh, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, over the course of the last week, have been producing similar reports that all come to the same conclusions. They come to the conclusion that there has been war crimes committed in Syria. Uh, and just today, Human Rights Watch, about an hour and a half ago, stepped in front of a uh, press conference in New York showing how chemical weapons have been used by the Assad regime. Whereas just last week, Amnesty has been describing how um, people were systematically killed in a prison. Now, what we decided to do is that as we are listening to these messages in Aleppo and single out on Aleppo as our, as our key story of Syria, how could we compare what is being said to the information that a lot of us know about? We would look into the city in itself and the territory that was held, and we would step by step try to recreate the events as they unfolded. Whether it was the displacement of civilians, whether it was the intentional siege that was supposed to push people out of the city, yet people still remained. Ceasefires that were misleading to further distort and deceive the public to try to extract it out of the city. Whether it was the attacks that were being used to further attempt to terrorize the population that still remained steadfast for so long. And then, of course, measures that today in the 21st century we would think were left behind in the 20th century. Measures such as hospital attacks, intentional strikes on the only places that seem to be safe for the people of Aleppo. The use of cluster munition, weapons that we for a long time thought were banned and were left behind to the past. The use of incendiary ammunition and chemical weapons. And if we put all of that together and we start mapping out where these incidents happened, using methods that we'll show you in just a second here, is we start realizing a pattern. Now, the green area here is the rebel-controlled area, and the red area is the Assad regime-controlled area, a red-gray area. And as we go through time, we realize that the strikes that were occurring, the attacks that were occurring repeated, repeatedly happened in the same areas. And they were, these were primarily areas that were clearly not regime-held an intentional campaign to try to make this 
remaining territory that was not regime held smaller step by step. A year ago, we were left with this picture. We moved forward by a few months and the socket got smaller, the pocket got smaller, till eventually we were left with just a few weeks ago with no territory under the control of rebels and non-combatants. What we were left with was a tiny pocket from which the people of Aleppo were forced to evacuate. And what we are now left with is a record of a crime against humanity that one would have not thought would still be possible in today's age. Now, as we look into these attacks, every single one of them is a story in itself. Every single person that was on the ground, whether they were posting or not, was witnessing these attacks in their affected neighborhoods. And so what we decided to do is to show you today one of these attacks. It is a specific hospital that has been repeatedly targeted, um, which underscores that these are not accidental strikes that were happening. And these were intentionally focused campaigns to push the remaining non-combatants and the remaining civilians, the anti-Assad people, out of Aleppo. From June to December 2016, according to the Syrian American Medical Society, the Omar bin Abdelaziz Hospital, also known as M2, has been subject to 14 strikes by pro-government forces. The hospital has been damaged from inside and out. Video clips and still images taken in and around the hospital allow us to reconstruct some of the consequences of these strikes. Each photograph captures only a small part of the building but composing and cross-referencing them allows us to reconstruct the architecture of the building and locate the images of the bombing. We locate the photographs with the model. The model then becomes the medium through which we can navigate between the different images and videos of the incidents. There are a number of CCTV cameras in the hospital that are continuously on, capturing every strike. We locate each camera and its orientation in the building. We integrate footage from the CCTV cameras, handheld videos, and photographs to reconstruct the interior spaces. This video placed within the model is from the strike on July 16, 2016. Locating each video clip in space provides a tangible link between them, verifying their place and constructing their relation to each other. We follow the civilians as they move through the targeted building. On the ground floor, there are four CCTV cameras, and each captures the consequence of the strikes. This CCTV camera captures one of the corridors leading to an exit from the building.
This video of medical staff transporting a wounded person to an ambulance provides an essential link between inside and outside. As they load the wounded person into an ambulance, we can see the disposition of buildings outside, a fact that helps us verify the location of the building. According to the UN, by mid-August 2016, Omar bin Abdelaziz Hospital was one of only three hospitals in Aleppo offering intensive care, and the only hospital left with a pediatric department caring for children. 2016 was the most dangerous year for health workers in Syria. Fourteen strikes targeted Omar bin Abdelaziz M2 Hospital in a span of six months. June 3rd, June 14th, July 14th, July 16th, August 1st, August 5th, August 11th, August 14th, September 23rd, September 26th, September 28th, November 18th, December 4th, December 14th. As we're zooming out of this tragic, specific case in Aleppo, in this hospital, we also have to understand that there are several of those cases throughout the entire city where the attacks don't seem to only appear once by coincidence, but a repeated pattern, an intentional effort to destroy these last safe havens for the civilians. In this specific case, uh, we were uh, very pleased to be able to work, um, actually invite forensic architecture, a, uh, forensic research team in London to independently come to the same conclusions as us uh, in the case of this hospital, which underscores the power of open source and digital forensic research. If we just pay close enough attention to the conflicts around the world using these tools, whether it is an ordinary civilian or entire research team, we can find out more what is happening and this differentiate between fact and fiction on the ground. We're now going to transfer to a panel discussion with Karen Young. Um, I think it's going to take a minute or two, uh, but thank you very much. Thanks. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Karen DeYoung with the Washington Post, and I'm going to moderate our discussion this afternoon. We've all heard the details of this important report, and we have a great panel here to talk about it. We're going to start, however, with someone who has a somewhat different and more immediate perspective, that of someone who lived during the siege on the ground in Aleppo. Abdul Kafi Alhamdo was an English teacher in the city of Aleppo. He lived in the rebel-held eastern portion of the city and left in the final evacuation. During the siege, he was an invaluable resource to many journalists, like myself, and others seeking to understand what was happening inside. Good morning, Abdul. Can you hear us and see us? We're going to start, however, with someone who has a somewhat... Hello? Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Yes. 
Great. Yes, I can. Great. Good. Good afternoon. Good evening, wherever you are. Um, I wonder if good you evening. Could, <laughs> I wonder if you could begin by just talking a little bit about what your life was like before 2016 in Aleppo, specifically since 2012, when the um, when the opposition first took over the eastern half of the city, and during the three and a half, four years when Aleppo operated under their control. Just talk a little bit about what life was like there. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, when uh, Aleppo, uh, first half of Aleppo was, uh, was uh, liberated by rebels, uh, I uh, moved to this part of, uh, of the city because I wasn't there. I was um, living in the, uh, the, uh, the other part of the city. So uh, we tried, uh, under these conditions, under these uh, horrible conditions of bombing, of horror, uh, to make life, uh, to, me, to make a, a new life for, for the people. For me, I was a teacher, so I tried uh, to, uh, to teach the children, to teach uh, the students uh, the meaning of freedom and how uh, can we uh, have our freedom. But uh, the Assad regime uh, was always uh, targeting us with, uh, with all kinds of weapons just to make people get away of Aleppo. So Assad regime uh, started uh, 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 2012. So people moved out of the city gradually. Uh, first of all, uh, it was populated by uh, 1 million point seven people, this part of the city. But in uh, November uh, 20, uh, 20, uh, 2013, um, there was the Pearl Pumps attack, as we call it. Uh, so most uh, of the people uh, uh, moved away of the city. Nevertheless, a lot of people preferred to stay. For me, um, I was a single, just um, uh, all my dream is uh, to teach children. But after that, when I got married, I have more responsibility uh, about my family. Nevertheless, uh, you know, the, the only thing, the only um, uh, clear thing in Aleppo was horror. So when I... Uh, um, Every time I go out of uh, I go out of the home, I should say goodbye to my wife because I might I might not see her again. So when I come back again, so this is a new life. Uh, so you know, all all the Aleppo people there uh, have this uh, kind of experience. But nevertheless, everywhere you go, you see the pain. You see that uh, people are suffering. But nevertheless, they insist to stay. They want to resist because uh, people uh, know it's a siege, a horrific siege. Uh, for me and uh, my friends know that, that Aleppo will be uh, under siege one day because uh, we see uh, the way that the regime is targeting and um, shilling the areas that he wants to control. So we know that it would be... Um, uh, besieged one day. Nevertheless, we stayed, uh, we fought, we taught at schools, uh, we fought this kind of depression that uh, was everywhere inside Aleppo, in the eastern part of Aleppo. Uh, but uh, 
we at least lived our freedom. We didn't. Uh, we were not afraid of being arrested. We were not afraid of being um, uh, uh, dealt with in a very bad way uh, by, for example, the acid regime soldiers or, or like this. So it was a, f uh, a free life for us. Well, go go to the summer of 2016 and what happened? How did how did it change? Okay, uh, we always divide. Uh, uh, you know, the, the life in, inside Aleppo into uh, many parts. So the, the, the first four, uh, four years, um, they were uh, they, they, they were another part, and the last six months is another part, and last week is uh, something different. So the last six months uh, equals the four years of, of horror. And the last week equals uh, the, the, uh, the previous uh, period because when you are under siege it's different from uh, being open to the world so when you are under siege uh, this means that uh, uh, you, you, you have many uh, faces of death uh, many ways to death uh, by hunger by uh, lack of medicine by lack uh, by, by horror in general by poems uh, so when we when we uh, we were under siege and we know this, we we tried to have uh, some food, some water uh, to uh, keep us alive for a long period. Uh, frankly speaking, we thought that uh, the siege period will be longer, as it happened in uh, other parts in Syria, like Daria and Al Ghuta. But the regime uh, didn't want this, and he wanted uh, to finish this uh, as soon as possible, maybe because uh, Russia wants this, frankly speaking. So they started uh, a very uh, offensive attacks, uh, heavy, uh, heavy attacks on us by bombs, by shelling, by all kinds of weapons. Just imagine that uh, when you see uh, bunker pastor rockets, uh, cluster bombs, chlorine attacks, uh, burning uh, bombs, uh, all these in one day, in very small area, so you know that we uh, we are in a holocaust. It, it was a holocaust of Aleppo. People there uh, are sentenced to death, not to life at all. But, uh, frankly speaking, we were shocked by uh, the reaction of, of the of the governments, of course, towards us. Uh, of course, United Nations was a part with Assad, who helped Assad uh, to finally displace at, uh, us uh, from uh, Aleppo. In many uh, ways, they uh, helped uh, Assad. For me, I, I'm going to tell you about my experience in the last uh, uh, six months. I was teaching in a school which was a little bit away of uh, my house. I stopped going there because most of the time, sometimes I have one hour electricity uh, a day, sometimes, but most of the city was without any electricity. Uh, so we started suffering from the lack of food and medicine. For example, I'm, I'm going to tell you about my wife got sick one day and I tried hard to have paracetamol for hair, and I couldn't. 
my 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 daughter I uh, my daughter was six months uh, those days and um, she wants food and I I didn't the only food that she had uh, from her mother but when her mother got sick now no uh, no milk from her mother and no any kind of food just uh, my daughter was uh, crying all the time I finally have some ways to feed her but they were not su sufficient even my, uh, my my wife suffered a lot uh, because of her sickness but finally uh, she got better so and beside this the the horror uh, every every time you can't sleep two continuous hours you have to wake up every half a uh, half <clears throat> if there are no poems, so this is unusual was inside Aleppo. If you hear about people uh, uh, died not by bombs, this is not usual. The usual that people die by bombs. Can you talk about yes. can you can you take us to the evacuation and just talk about your own experience how how you got out of there and what your situation is now? Okay. The last week of our uh, siege was horrible. I see people lying on the ground, uh, just asking for help, and no one can go to the streets to help them. Uh, then the building beside uh, my house exactly was collapsed, and be I could hear people under the rubble asking help, but no vehicles to help them. They died in peace uh, there. So then the decision of, of uh, evacuation came. <sighs> We were sentenced to be displaced of our homeland. Uh, of course, it's not a favor. Uh, it's a kind of punishment for us because being away of... of but uh, the evacuation was another horrible story. I was one day waiting the buses to come uh, when I saw uh, people who went before me rushing back I didn't know, but they were crying. Some of them were likely naked. When I asked them, <coughs> what happened to you? They said that they arrested us, they stole us, and uh, they killed some uh, people and arrested others. And the, the other people were pushing back to the besieged park. When, uh, of course, uh, days later, uh, the evacuation uh, continu uh, continued. So I was on the buses. It was a horrible story because I, I will tell you exactly what happened to me. I was on the buses, only on the buses. I was three hours waiting. So we didn't take any food, any water, because we know that uh, um, the journey will, will take maybe half an hour maximum. But we didn't imagine that it would take 20 hours. So when we asked... To bring us some water, they said it's prohibited. Exactly the same word, it's prohibited. I asked him, how can? We, we want water. Uh, uh, my, daughter, uh, my daughter wants water. He said, no, you can't. Uh, I said, okay, I, I, I want to go out because uh, the eastern part of Aleppo is, the besieged part is so close. No, if you if you have a step out of the bus, you are going to be killed. Th this speech is by the Red Crescent member. So 
20 hours we were uh, uh, <coughs> prevented from water, food, and even children prevented from going out to uh, toilet or like this. They said, do everything on the bus. We were 102. Uh, so it was so crowded. For me, I didn't have a place to stand, not to sit, to stand. Just we were standing over each other uh, because no, no place. Even at night, uh, all the children were crying. They were crying because of hunger, because of, of thirsty. And always the Red Crescent members say, uh, please uh, make your children silent. Uh, because of your safety or they are going to face a horrible uh, or you are all you are going to face a horrible <coughs> result it's a kind of um, of threatening that you are going to be uh, killed after that until the next day we got on the buses at 1 p.m and we arrived at uh, 9 a.m the next day it was on 19 of december so i i can't uh, forget the, uh, this evacuation uh, journey. Thank you so much. I'm, uh, we're out of time now, but we so much appreciate you being with us and very happy that, that you and your family are safe. Thank you very much. Uh, now I'd like our panel to come up and we will introduce them. Let me get out of the way. I think your, your name's on your... Uh, I think we could have all listened to that story the entire afternoon. <laughs> True. Um, I want to introduce you to our panel. You'll see that they all have detailed biographies, I think, in your in your program. But just to give you an idea of the of the areas of expertise that they that they bring to the discussion, Elliot Higgins, who you see on the screen, Elliot, can you hear us? Uh, yes, I can. Great. Um, Elliot Higgins is an investigative journalist, the founder of Bellingcat and the Brown Moses blog, source of invaluable information for many of us over the years of the Syrian conflict. Uh, among a number of academic appointments. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. Elliot is the writer responsible for the chapters on the attacks themselves, ranging from chemical uh, to incendiary weapon usage. And he's an expert in, obviously, the use of digital forensic and open source reporting uh, that's been used here to get to the truth of who did what, when, in and around Aleppo. Uh, Emma Beals is an award-winning investigative journalist based in southern Turkey who has focused on, on Syria, uh, the conflict there since 2012. Uh, her particular focus has been on humanitarian aid during sieges, civilians, and why the international community has failed to protect them. Faisal Itani is a senior fellow at the Council, focusing most recently on the Syrian conflict and its impact on the region and on the development of militant groups inside Syria. And he wrote the report's conclusion and, and much of its foreword. Uh, Dr. Lena Murad is a physician, a board member of the Syrian American Medical Society, 
uh, which, as you know, works with doctors inside besieged areas on how to function with limited resources and provides training for them. She's been inside Syria a number of times on medical relief and training missions. Um, I want to start uh, with you to talk a little bit about the hospital attacks, the kinds of things that we just saw, um, and talk about how the society works, uh, how you get supplies in when there are no supplies getting in, uh, what kind of people are you training, uh, what, um, how do you, are you dealing with people with no expertise, with some expertise, and how, just how have you, what have you learned about how to operate in this kind of situation? <clears throat> right, you know, you know that you know, this conflict has been going on for over five years. So at the beginning, you know, we're dealing with a set number of people. Uh, you know, we trained at the beginning the physician and then we relied on them to train, you know, we call train the trainers. Later on, we realized that we had to expand, you know, because of the uh, destruction that was going on. So we started training anybody who's willing to work, you know, majority of the physician left, you know, they either left to find another job or they were killed or displaced. So we had to work with different level of um, uh, expertise. So we have medical students, for instance, uh, um, you know, put in lines for us. We rely mostly on either going to Turkey or going inside Syria and training them, or we uh, did telemedicine. So, you know, we'll have, you know, curriculum and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll meet with them. You know, I'm a nephrologist, so we'll have, um, you know, a meeting with a nephrologist and the technician, dialysis technician every week. And every Sunday, we'll meet over two hours, we'll address, you know, the issue that they have. We had to invent, you know, like a little uh, dialysis machine, you know, rigging different parts, you know, basically what we used to use here in the U.S. in 1970. And um, we trained them, you know, how to use it in, like, you know, austere conditions, obviously. So, you know, we find ways to, to deal. And obviously, you know, they're smart people that picked up and they were willing to, to, to learn and deal with us. Um, with the destruction, you know, going on, we knew actually, like, you know, like everybody else, you know, knew when the, the siege was going to come close. Um, you know, the regime used this, you know, in Madaya, in Daraya, they, they, they start, you know, with the siege, then the starvation, then the bombing, and then they displace, you know, the people. So, for instance, in Aleppo, when this was going to happen, we knew starting in February 2016 that the area is going to be under siege. And I remember clearly meeting in February and deciding that when Aleppo is going to go under siege, what are we going to do? And we started shifting our resources to inside Aleppo. We actually decided that we're going to have three months supply, you know, between three and six months supply inside Aleppo. And this is before the Castello Road was cut off. Mm -hmm. So we, we shifted everything, you know, that we have to inside, you know, the area. The majority of the supply went to um, M10, you know, which is the Sahur Hospital. Unfortunately, when the siege started, you know, they could not distribute, you know, all the supplies to all the areas, you know, so we had one focal point, you know, but, you know, it fell, it fell short. Can I get, uh, Elliot, we'll, we'll have you over there, just talk a little bit about your work, about, um, I mean, I've been familiar with your work for a long time, but talk a little bit about your work and, and about this project and the importance of, of documenting in a systemic way uh, what happened. Well, I'm sure many of the people in this room would have heard um, about many of the things we've been writing about, the chemical weapon attacks, the hospital attacks. Um, what really surprised me was when we actually looked at the evidence and started gathering it, just the, first of all, the volume of evidence there, there was, and also the massive amount of incidents there were compared to what was being reported in the media. So, um, you, you know, we looked at, for example, M2 and M10 hospital each, which were atta attacked, um, d uh, you know, a couple of dozen times. Um, and, and just the evidence of it also seems so clear. 
So taking the kind of, kind of forensic approach we used, we pieced together the evidence as best we could, which um, was actually quite extensive, combining the on-the-ground um, information plus satellite imagery presented a very compelling case. Um, it was then possible for forensic architecture to review the same information and come to the same conclusions as us, um, plus you know, create some uh, really useful uh, visualizations of the information, because it's often quite difficult to look at these many photographs and videos, and even when we describe it at length, um, sometimes it's easier when it's presented in a very compelling visual format, which I think we've seen. Emma, could you talk a just a bit about about your work and about uh, how how you've gone about doing it over these years in this inhospitable environment? Yeah, well, um, as a journalist working on on Syria for a number of years, the way that we've been able to do that has changed sort of significantly. So, in 2012, 13, 14, it was still possible to go in and out of the country. So, we would go to Aleppo or to the countryside, um, and I remember writing about the potential siege of Aleppo from the Castello Road front lines sort of two or three years ago. Um, and as it's got more and more hospitable, inhospitable, rather, um, that reporting has had to change. And so projects like this where you're able to sort of really analyze all the information and data that's available and come to some conclusions about um, what has happened are really, really important. But having covered it for a number of years um, has enabled us to build up those kind of relationships with people who have access to that data because for all sorts of security reasons, um, getting information out of Syria is very difficult. People have to have built up that ingrained trust in you and the way that you're going to use that information um, because if you name the wrong person or give the location out of something that that um, shouldn't be given out at that particular time, you can risk people's lives um, and their safety. And so um, for those of us that have covered it for a while, it has been possible to pull back from being there in a physical sense and start to sort of cover it remotely with some credibility because you have had that experience and you have shown up and you know who the person you're speaking to is and you know what the place they're calling you from looks like because you've been there and because you've talked to them consistently and know that what they're telling you has proved to be correct time and time again. So being able to put all of that into one report, I think has been really helpful, covering Aleppo toward the end of last year. Um, events on the ground were changing so rapidly that just trying to catch up with what had happened in the last hour or the last day was, I mean, that was a full-time job. And so being able to step back a little bit and say, hang on a minute, there was lots of stuff flying around which of it was true, which of it wasn't, you know, let's put it all together and see what that looks like. Faisal, could you, you talk a little bit about, about your work on this project and, and more generally about the sort of regional reaction to, yeah. uh, to Aleppo? Well, obviously, I'm, I'm not a journalist. I deal with it more from a policy angle from here in Washington. What I've tried to do as I've worked on Syria is try to translate uh, local local developments into insights that make sense here in the Washington policy context and hopefully inform policy in a useful useful way. Uh, I've been a bit fortunate, I think, in the fact that I'm from there and am physically here, but I have to admit, as an honest analyst, I struggle with the knowledge problem as well and the information problem. It's difficult enough as is without all this obfuscation and the, uh, and the lies and the manipulation but with those, and I think this is actually personally what struck me hardest about the project that we were working on and the findings, is 
this new sort of post-truth phase of international relations, even about something as high profile and as important as this, I find it terrifying on, a level, about, on the policy level and even on a sort of philosophical level as a researcher. Uh, that's why I find these tools that we were using so compelling, the digital forensic research, because it's sort of an outsourcing and democratization of a way of pushing back uh, with, uh, with tools that are available to really anybody with minimal training. Uh, we're going to need them more than ever now because this happened, this Aleppo siege happened and the collapse when I think we're at a turning point in the war where the idea of a militarized revolution overthrowing the regime is done for now. Uh, and also we have a new administration in Washington, uh, which is just as dramatic a change, and uh, we're still figuring that out. So I think these tools are, are more useful than ever. I want to, um, to both Emma and Elliot, and this is, this is kind of a parochial question. Uh, for somebody like me, I'm sitting here trying to write about what's happening thousands of miles away. Obviously, we have people on the ground, but as you said, Emma, there, uh, it's been some time before people have actually been, since people have actually been inside Syria. Um, but, I, but I am familiar with the difficulties of trying to figure out basic truth. Um, as, as both of you said, we've got information just pouring out from, from all sides, not only from people on the ground. Um, we have, you, you know, there were text message groups where for those of us who were on them, it was just, I mean, few 10 minute spans went by 24 hours a day without messages being, being pushed out. There were photographs, videos, audio tapes, uh, government um, statements. And so we've also seen that the Russians in particular sometimes manufacture their own information, um, misdirecting statements, muddying the water. I think a good example of that was the bombing of the humanitarian convoy in September where, where it immediately was seen as just a horrific um, um, human rights catastrophe, uh, and yet the Russians immediately came back with a, with a, uh, a different narrative um, that, that people like me ended up having to report on. So how do you, both of you, um, Elliot in your, in your blog and, and Emma as you're, as you're sitting on the ground there, how do you sort out things like that in real time to, to make a difference? Um, obviously, the ultimate difference requires certain governments to take different actions. But, but in terms of, of informing the world and, and being trusted sources of information, e either one of you who wants to start, go ahead. Um, so um, I'll, I'll give an example we've used in the report, M10 Hospital. Um, that was quite an uh, interesting case because there we had Russia, uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense presenting satellite imagery that they claimed showed that reports that the hospital was bombed uh, was untrue, that footage and images that were published online uh, were fakes or from elsewhere. So um, what we were able to do there as part of our research is first we look at all the possible sources of information that could have posted something and gathered the videos and photographs and statements from various people um, sharing stuff online. So for example, we had uh, groups like the Aleppo Media Center sharing information. Uh, we had various activist groups who were sending us uh, video footage 
But then the next key part is verifying that. So what we try and do is look at all these videos and photographs and actually figure out where they are in the physical space around the area affected. Um, and that allows us to figure out which ones are actually part of the same incident and which ones are actually from other incidents. So in the case of M10, um, the vast majority of things we found were from the actual attacks. We also discovered that it wasn't only bombed one time, but it was bombed three separate times in a week. And that gave us something very useful, which was before and after photographs of the attack. So there's one image that for me was very strong, um, was the um, crater on the east side of the hospital, hospital after the October 1st attack. Was, uh, it was fairly large, but two days later there was another attack which created an even larger crater, um, damaging the main building. Now that was useful because it actually showed to us that this, this attack occurred in a time frame. Um, we also had CCTV camera, security camera footage from the actual um, hospital itself showing the moment of the attack attack uh, clearly showing damage and satellite imagery as well showing the crater appearing and damage to the surrounding area so by combining all those pieces of information we could confirm that this incident did take place and um, evidence the exact damage what that was done um, and also show that you know the russian ministry of Def defense presented information that was completely untrue Emma? Yeah. um well i think you touched on something interesting and and um you know, this notion that journalists who were covering the fall of Aleppo in real time were just pushing out whatever they were being told um, simply isn't true. I mean, we were having constant conversations amongst ourselves about, you know, what do you think of this sort of rumour that's coming out? Does it pass the sort of sniff test to you? And most of it was within the realms of possibility. You know, it was imaginable that these things were happening. Um, and some of them had, had proof. You know, the bombings had a lot of um, video evidence. And some of them nothing seemed to be coming out about them. And, and we were sort of saying to ourselves, well, can we report that or not? And can we source it? And in that constantly moving situation, that was very difficult. Um, so having the time to come back to it in this kind of way, in a slower way, um, has sort of enabled us. So for instance, the executions. I mean, that was one thing. In mid-December, there was this rumor, or this statement was made by the Office of the Commissioner for Human Rights at the UN saying that 82 people had been executed um, in a particular area of East Aleppo as it had come back under control um, of government forces. And at the time, there was no discernible evidence to suggest that this had, in fact, happened. All we had was the statement of this person. Um, so journalists all took their own view on whether to print that at the time. But going back to it now, we were able to go back to the Office of the Commissioner for Human Rights, and they had been able to stand up and they stood by the statement that they had made. Um, and we were also able to go through other sources as well, three, four, five sources, and start to pull together photos and names and talk to the family members of these people and really understand what had happened and say, well, actually, this does seem to have happened and we can prove it in all of these different ways. And that's, that's where having the time and the resource to sort of pull back from that constant sort of very quick um, news cycle is really, really helpful. Mm. Um, yeah, and I just want to say one thing, you know, about, you know, when, when the hospital gets targeted, you know, like in M10, it's a different reporting, you know, like the first time, for instance, you know, the top floor collapsed, okay, and you, you know, there's a report, obviously, that, you know, the hospital was targeted, yet we moved to the OR, you know, to the basement, and we continue the work. So there would be a report, you know, saying that the hospital has been targeted, and then, 
you know, they said, oh, we continue to do our work, you know, and they said, oh, well, you're lying in here. Well, we're not lying, you know. And then there's a report in, in M2 also that, you know, uh, Dr. Farida, you know, who was the only OBGYN left, you know, she had an interview and she said, you know, she will be up in the room and then all of a sudden the, the, the you know, she's doing a delivery and then the ceiling would collapse on her and the AC, you know, came out of the room and she has to finish her delivery. Then they moved, you know, again to the basement, you know, they moved women from like the porch, you know, we call it like veranda to the inside, you know, and they constantly shifting patients, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, here came in, he's like, well, you're lying. Um, the hospital is operational, yet it's been targeted. So, I mean, the two were happening at the same time. I want to ask one policy question, and then we'll and then we'll go to the to your questions. Um, Faisal, in the in the report, in the I think it's in the foreword, it says it says that a credible ceasefire does not require occupying the country or engaging in nation building. What it does require is the imposition of costs on violators. Um, in this case, the regime, Russia and Iran whether through direct kinetic action, robust support for local allies on the ground, or any other effective measures in the policy toolkit, breaking Aleppo did not end the war or serious challenges to US interests. And, and you say that the United States is now in a weakened position and that making Assad and, and Iran pay may require some kind of kinetic action. And yet we have an administration now that really, I think, has made very clear that the outcome of the Syrian war does not concern it very much, um, that it feels like it has bigger fish to fry, mm -hmm. and that unlike a, uh, the Obama administration for all of its faults was saying that the war against the Islamic State would not be won until the Syrian war was settled, uh, you have an administration that does not believe that and does not believe that, that aiding the opposition in any way is really worth its, worth its time or money. Mm -hmm. so, so what will happen if, if the administration just drops out of the Syrian conflict? Um, would you expect other countries in the region to take it up? Would you expect them to feel like the restraints that the United States has imposed on their activities don't exist anymore? What's, what's the likely scenario? Well, uh, I, I want to nitpick a bit at the beginning. The premise was not that A, was about punishing or making Iran and Assad pay. Uh, the issue was about freezing a conflict along certain ceasefire lines and, and imposing costs on whoever violates it. Thus far, the main violator of ceasefires has been specifically, not, not on the level of a coalition, specifically the Assad regime. Uh, now, whether or not the foreign powers have had to maneuver around that, support him sometimes, withdraw or modulate their, their support for him at other times is a different story. But I think the driving factor here, the problem here is that the, one of the main belligerents in the conflict thinks that they can still make military gains and translate them into political gains, and they're not wrong. So as long as that equation applies, there isn't going to be a ceasefire or a settlement. And whether or not that's necessary or not brings us to your next, your next question about the administration and what it seeks to accomplish. I personally don't think you can solve one of the compartmentalized problems in Syria, which is the ISIS problem, without stabilizing the country somewhat, somewhat, at least the major levels of violence, at least deciding what the rough parameters of territorial control are and things of that sort. I think within the administration itself, uh, it, de it also depends on who you're speaking about, uh, because there are persons within the administration who actually think 
that the Iran problem, the Assad problem, the ISIS problem are all connected in some way or another. Maybe not by the same rationale the Obama administration uh, pitched, but, but by their own security rationale. And then you have others who see ISIS as a problem that actually should be handled with or in partnership with the Assad regime. That argument has its uh, supporters. Uh, I understand why some people embrace it, but I think the way this war has been fought shows that we don't, that a regime, a unitary actor regime that we think can help liberate and stabilize this territory, I don't think that that option exists. It's not that I don't think it's just or not just taking aside the moral equation. I don't think it's possible. Uh, and I think they'll find that out soon enough, honestly. Uh, they'll try to do what they want to do in Raqqa and take a city, but we're going to be exactly where we are still in, in terms of the jihadi threat, even if it isn't ISIS as we now formulate it as a controller of cities and a caliphate, etc. Uh, questions? If you would raise your hand and uh, someone will bring you a microphone and uh, identify yourself and, and your affiliation. Don't be shy. Yes. Okay, hang on one second. We'll do this one first. Hi, my name is Sean Coughlin. I work at the at the State Department. Um, and so let me say first that I think we're, we're trying to gather information in a similar way that, that you are. And um, one thing that I was really interesting is that you didn't just talk about the attacks on hospitals themselves. You're kind of thinking more broadly as well about what is necessary to create proof. Uh, and it's all these various points you've already talked about. Um, you talk about the number of attacks and, and, and talking about whether or not there's a strategy. Um, and in terms of proving something is deliberate, another thing that could potentially be of value is you have this very, very granular look through satellite imagery of the attacks on the hospitals themselves. But one thing that would make it harder to disprove that something was maybe targeting a hospital multiple times is if you could prove that the area immediately around the hospital was not filled with weapons carrying rebels who were fighting back or something like that. And so I'm just wondering if in the context of your imagery work, you didn't only focus on the hospital themselves, but focus your combination of satellite and ground truthing with any kind of proof that the immediate environs were not surrounded by, by rebels or weapons cache or something like that. Who wants to, uh, Elliot, is that? I'll tell you that. Um, so um, what we have access to is quite a, a great deal of satellite imagery from multiple dates um, going back over a year um, for eastern Aleppo. So we're able to see what the surrounding area looked like. Um, in the case of the hospital attacks, I, I've, I've never seen anything in those imagery that looks like any kind of um, tank or, you know, of a military vehicle. Um, one of the most interesting things about the M10 hospital bombing was how much empty space there was around that location and how close the um, attacks were. Um, I mean, it, the example I gave before, we had this crater that was then, uh, you know, the same location was bombed again, and that's a few meters away from the wall of the hospital. There's no re wreckage of any vehicles there, um, no evidence of any kind of military equipment. The only military equipment that was recovered was the remains of cluster bombs that had been dropped on the hospital. So, um, you know, there was, um, during our research, and we did look for this, there was no signs that there was any military activity in those areas. Sir, you had a question? Uh, Radwan Ziada Syrian Center. First, I would like actually to thank the Atlantic Council for this uh, 
amazing report uh, using different methodology and different techniques. Uh, I have a question uh, to Faisal. Uh, it's clear that 2015, the conflict is freezed. Uh, there is the Assad government has shortage of manpower, but at the same time, the opposition cannot advance because of the lack of weapons and, and all of that. 2016 was breakthrough to the Assad government through with the help of, of Russians. But here my question that in which way you can do the comparison, not only in Aleppo, but first started on February 2016 uh, with the, the Zabadani, Madaya, then later on in, in, in April in Daraya, then later on in Aleppo. And the same patterns, they started with the siege, uh, then later on with the targeting the hospitals. The main concern in Daraya that there is no hospitals left. There is no way to get any humanitarian assistance. Mm -hmm. And then come into Aleppo. These patterns now, maybe we'll see it again in, in, in Idlib, and we'll see it again in, and this is then, what's the conclusion we can come up to stop this pattern, or we just can we let it go? Who would like to address that? I mean, you know, like, you know, like you said, you know, Daraya actually had one hospital, and this is how they broke, you know, the, the siege finally. When they hit, you know, the very last hospital, and the 8,000 people that were left, you know, in that area basically gave up, you know, and that basically when the regime found, you know, that this tactic works, over and over, you know, with impunity, and so basically he continued, you know, so what, that was his green light, you know, to keep going on. And as we speak, you know, they're attacking um, Idlib, you know, that, you know, and uh, the, um, you know, the hospitals in Hama suburbs, and, um, you know, Kafir Zeta, and then our, our Sam's hospital, you know, in a cave, you know, was also hit. And then they're attacking the same thing, you know, in Damascus, the Kabun, you know, hospitals. So it is, you know, the, the targeted you know, still continue to go on, and I think, you know, the international community just decided to turn the blind eye, you know, to, to this. So it, it's not lack of information, actually, it's lack of accountability. So, um, you know, we, we tried, you know, through SAMS, you know, to, to advocate, went to Congress, went to the Senate, went even to the UN. And even after the resolution 2286, you know, that, um, you know, said, you know, that it's illegal to attack, you know, medical facilities, the, the attack increased by 89%. So I think, you know, at this point, unless the international community and especially our administration here in the U.S. decide, you know, to take a stand and said, enough is enough, we have the information, we, we're going to hold somebody accountable to this, nothing will change. So, you know, we're witnessing the continuation of, of Aleppo breaking is going to be Hama breaking, then it's going to be Idlib breaking. Did anybody else want to? No, I mean, I think that there's a forecast that's absolutely correct. I, I don't think, who knows, but I don't think the, the administration would take action based on holding these parties accountable for atrocities. Uh, I think they would do it if they felt that it served a CT purpose and it served to contain the Iranian rise in the region and maybe reach a new logical, rational relationship with Russia. You know, I'm not, I mean, I'm not judging either way. I wish, uh, I wish the atrocities were reason enough, uh, but I think if, uh, if they weren't under the previous administration, they're not going to be under this one. And if that, and if that doesn't happen, if, if such a ceasefire and an imposition of rules doesn't happen, I think this is exactly what's gonna happen to be honest. Mm. Yes, sir. Uh, 
Alexander Kravitz from Inside Iraq. Uh, it's gripping, you know, uh, uh, the ambassador's comments, uh, introductory comments, Ambassador Hoffs. I mean, they were they were gripping, and everything that you have said. I I. I, I say this respectfully, but I, I'm 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 shocked that it's almost a bunch of kids that have you know released this this report. I mean, um, and and I picking wish. up. Well, <laughs> I mean, we won't compare. But to pick up on 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 the last question and and and, and the last two answers. So the administration or the UN is not going to hold anybody accountable. So I'm thinking. It might take a bunch of kids again to, you know, to, to attempt to 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 hold uh, people accountable. And so the question is, are you working to build, you know, a, a human rights case? Um, I'm thinking here of it's a totally different uh, uh, situation. But you know, Mal Clooney with a Yazidi survivor. I mean, are you providing this information to, um, uh, you know, to, to human rights lawyers that can build a case that at least, you know, over time eventually might get somewhere? Thank you. Um, Emma, do you know anything about? I, I could answer that one if need be. Okay. Yeah, so um, um, through the work we've been doing, we have been working with various international organizations who are very interested in using um, both specific material that we've been collecting and uh, this kind of investigative methodology more broadly. Um, one project we've been doing um, at Bellingcat is something called the Syrian Archive, where we've been archiving um, videos, but also doing investigations like this around those videos. So, you know, maybe in 10 or 15 years when something actually might actually, you know, reach a stage where this is in court, that this evidence is there, it's been collected, it's been organized, um, and it's available for people to review. Um, but there is certainly a growing interest, um, and I've experienced this personally, among international uh, organizations in using this material for prosecutions. Um, and I, I think we'll soon see in the future this kind of stuff being used um, in prosecutions. Other questions? Yes, sir. Thank you, Mohammed Ghanem with the Syrian American Council. I have a question for the Atlantic Council uh, at large. Uh, incredible effort, thank you so much. How are you planning to share the findings of the report with, uh, with different US agencies and with US Congress? Thanks. Faisal? Uh, I'm actually gonna defer to the people who, who <laughs> masterminded the report and I've got my own tactics, but. Uh, <laughs> I have to answer that. Um, we are, we are, I mean, there's a pretty big social media campaign currently ongoing. Uh, apparently, as we just learned, we've reached uh, some close to 65 million impressions on Twitter with this report, which is our attempt to try to get the public involved in it. But equally, we are obviously going to uh, spend quite some time on Capitol Hill talking to both sides of the aisle to spread this report as much as we can. And then, of course, on uh, Sunday this week, uh, some of the forward uh, co-authors, including Secretary Albright, are all going to be at the Munich Security Conference where global leaders will descend at a very uh, defining moment for the transatlantic community, and we will have a official uh, Europe lounge there at the Security Conference. Um, and that scratches the surface. The, uh, uh, in general, what we do is results orientation here, so when something like this comes out, uh, we try to figure out whatever we can do uh, to make it useful in, in material that can shape things. Uh, we also hear uh, with uh, uh, Senator uh, Murphy and Senator uh, uh, Portman launched their new initiative, $160 million initiative on, on Capitol Hill uh, to take on uh, uh, sort of counter-propaganda initiative, if you will. 
and and we see this satisfying a lot of different aims for for the for the Atlantic Council. It's uh, we care desperately about what happens in Syria and the Middle East. We care very much about uh, uh, responding to truthful uh, situations. And then we want to combine where we can to make sure that we're getting our facts straight and then who can we work with to follow up on this in, in the most useful way possible. Um, so uh, everything Max said is, is right. Uh, but then if uh, parts of the Hill want us to do um, uh, hearings, want us to come up there to brief in more detail, as you can imagine, the work that Elliot and others have done also has granularity to do it to it that you can't even put in this. It's so granular, and so uh, so we think that uh, there are multiple ways we can engage. Um, I, I have a question, which is, uh, Lena, you mentioned what's going on in, in Idlib and and other places. Um, for me, as somebody who has paid pretty close attention to all this stuff from the outside. Um, I, think, I think this report is enormously valuable. Um, it, it documents things that we were not sure could be documented before. Um, it puts things on the record in an indisputable way. Um, but it's not as if the world didn't know that horrible things were happening in Aleppo. Um, it's not as if the, the bombing of hospitals, um, the killing of civilians, the, um, the, all the horrible things that are, that are documented here. It's not, it's not as if people didn't know. And yet, there was an inability to do anything about it. And now we see it happening other places. And I agree with you. I think it's starting to happen uh, more in Aleppo. And you even see this week um, the United States bombing in Idlib, I'm sorry. United States bombing in Idlib because what you've done is you've concentrated uh, some real terrorists mm -hmm. there uh, that gives gives those who are of a mind to uh, even more of an excuse in their in their minds. So, so how how do you stop this? You've had you've had the way the United Nations is structured. Um, you know, you've you had ceasefire resolutions, humanitarian resolutions vetoed. Um, you have governments around the world that are not willing. And I don't think that's changed any to be active on the ground there. Um, what, do you, what do you do, each of you? How do you go forward? Yeah, I think we all have our different philosophies about it. I, I personally, I don't think anything, anything important or significant will happen without the United States being involved. I don't have faith in the capabilities and commitments of the local actors to get this right, even if they wanted to. Uh, and uh, as I'm watching you how mean things, the countries, uh, countries in the region. In, in, any of our own. Uh, but I do think the U.S., just like Russia came in, and Russia did actually turn the tide of the war, but it didn't do that solely by coming and bombing the opposition. It did it really by changing the calculation of, of the countries in the region, including most significantly Turkey, which is what led to, uh, for, to Aleppo falling, not the regime's military efforts, although obviously that was a necessary component. The United States is much more well-resourced and more powerful and more, more sophisticated as a, as, an, as a military actor and an intelligence actor and diplomatically would have profound effect on the calculations of, of, uh, of the countries operating there. And it doesn't have to do everything, but if it's not there, I don't think that shift will take place. To, to your question of, you know, everybody already knew. Here's the thing, though. I mean, I remember a year and a half ago, I was sitting with a minister from an unnamed European country 
who sat down, sat me down for an hour and a half to convince me that it was the rebels that did the Huta attack in August 2013. I mean, this is not, he was not an obscure blogger, you know, this is minister in a European country. I couldn't believe it, and of course I didn't try having the argument, and I didn't have, you know, uh, a big thick report with pictures and all this, but, you, you know, I, I thought to myself, wow, I mean, these are supposed to be we're all supposed to be on the same basic page here about what happened, at least when, it, when the other party is not an adversary. But this you know, misinformation, uh, post-truth uh, attacks has actually led to that level of, uh, of dissent and confusion and mutual suspicion that we can't get anything done. So uh, I do think it's, I think the situation is a bit more desperate than make out to be. That's my subjective experience. I think in addition, um, what was, what was helpful here and what I wanted to, to put into it was contextualizing some of the things that were happening within broader themes. So we've seen lots of reports from all sorts of organizations about specific kinds of attacks on hospitals or chemical weapons or you know, it, um, what's happening in the prisons, but pulling them all together and showing the way that they all worked together in the example of Aleppo, which for the most part was reported as if it was happening in a vacuum, as if the siege of Aleppo and what happened after that was this one isolated incident within the context of a bigger war. Um, and pulling out things like the siege and how many sieges are happening across the country and the ways those are being used to meet certain objectives helps people who, who want to look at this and then draw conclusions about what might be a good way to protect the civilians that are living in those areas as they go forward. Um, and same with the executions and the arrests and so forth because there are areas that are you know, coming back under the government control from these besieged sort of situations as we go along. And if you can look at the way that those things all happen together in one city and apply it and think, well, that might happen in the next, then hopefully people can start to make arrangements to try to prevent some of those things that happen at the end of this process that we've managed to lay out in this report. Well, talk a little bit about Idlib and what's happening there now and what you see happening and, and what can be done to not have a repeat. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm slightly confused about what's going to happen in Idlib, and I, I think a lot of people are. I mean, I think we've all been watching areas around Syria be evacuated, um, as they call it, into Idlib, and the people that are going there, some of them are militants, of course, um, and some of them are civilians who are, for whatever reason, wanting to avoid arrest because they were a doctor or they were an activist or a teacher or some other sort of um, profession that is is got them onto an arrest list or that they just didn't want to fight in the, in the Syrian army. Mm. Um, and so they're all sort of accumulating in Idlib. So you have two conflicting problems there. One is obviously a CT problem because you have sort of the residual some issue, which is increasing, and then you have, but you also have women and children and families, some of whom were there before and some of whom have been moved through, you know, ostensibly a humanitarian-ish process, and I haven't managed to work out, despite reasonably extensive research, what the um, arrangements for protection of those civilians are, um, and I think that that's an issue that needs a lot more attention, you know, not the rebel groups and who's fighting who. I mean, there's plenty of people writing about that. But what's going to happen to the the, the women and children and, and families and teachers and, and doctors that are in Idlib? What do you what do you see happening with? Uh... Well, we, we know what's going to happen. I mean, even the European told us, you know, the the, the 
the irony in this you know, whole Syrian situation is you know, we've been told from the beginning how this story is going to evolve. It's not like nobody knew about it. You know? We watched it, you know, I watched it on TV telling you this is what they're going to do and this is how they're going to attack and they're going to take Damascus and then they're going to have you know, all these people called you know, the useful Syria. The regime is going to keep fighting until he takes the area of useful Syria. And then now they're telling you they're going to evacuate everybody to Idlib, which they've been doing. You know, anybody from Damascus, from uh, you know, Aleppo, they've been evacuated there. And now there is a hodgepodge over there, you know, between militant and some Nusra and some, you know, and then a lot of civilians that are sitting there. And, you know, when we had, and then they're telling you, the European are telling us, you know, you need to watch out because, you know, within two months, they're going to attack Idlib. And it's going to be the same story. So it's not, we don't know. We know what's happening. And unfortunately, it's going to be much worse than Aleppo. Because you know, in Aleppo, you know, when, when Stefan de Mistura said, you know, oh, there were, you know, Jabhat al-Nusra, then they came up, you know, with like an 800 or 900, you know, number. Mm. I mean, they, we, we keep throwing, uh, you know, a, a, a lifeline, you know, to the regime. Oh, now you have, you know, the, the good, uh, um, you know, you have the right to go in and kill. These are all terrorists. So now, of course, you know, there are some terrorists. So now, you know, you have this, this enclave, you know, where you have, you know, all those people. It's going to be much worse than Aleppo. So we, we don't need to guess, you know, we, we know what's going to happen, unfortunately. Well, unfortunately, we've, I think we've run out of time, but I just want to um, thank the Atlantic Council and everybody who worked on this report because it's so important. And again, I'll speak parochially for those of us who are kind of from very far away um, trying to figure, figure things out and, and make at least a useful contribution to the truth. So thank you all for coming, and thank you all who, who participated in the report. Thank Thanks you. Good. Thank you.